Hey, Harvest. I'm not Doug. It's kind of like Pastor Swap Sunday, and it's a bit like, uh, it's kind of like a reality TV show, I think. Uh, Pastor Swapping, and uh, we are, we're just going to hope we don't get a bad episode, all right? So, um, my name is... Josh Nip. I'm the senior pastor at Harvest in Bloomington, Indiana, if you didn't know. Uh, Doug is actually down there preaching. Um, I'm pretty fired up about that. Our church gets an upgrade and uh, thankful that he gave me the opportunity to come here. So our church just really shares a deep affection for you, for your church family, and uh, all that you've meant to us. We love being in the fellowship with you. Our church sends you their greetings. Um, we have absolutely, honestly, I mean this sincerely, we have no idea where we would be if it had not been for you all uh, really in the last over a year and a half. So uh, we just want to continue to thank you and continue to advance the gospel together. But here is the thing. Uh, we do know where we are because of you. And uh, so next Sunday, praise the Lord, we uh, will be celebrating our one-year anniversary. And uh, amen. God is, doing, God is doing really great things. People are coming to life and lives are being changed and marriages are being restored, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on and on. But next week, uh, we are gonna pull out this baptistry that was given to us. Uh, go ahead and check it out. It's a bit of a sight for sore eyes right here, but um, it was given to us and uh, we started to do some work on it. So here is the picture of the baptistry in process. And uh, so we are preparing it for this Sunday and here's a picture of what it looks like completed. And uh, it has heat, and we have no problems with storage space, and we have a forklift, and we can just move it around to wherever you want. Aren't you jealous? That's right, you should be. I will boast in the Lord Jesus Christ and our baptistry. So, uh, so glad to be here. Uh, We are going after pillar two this week. We're in a series on the uh, four pillars of harvest, which really are the four pillars of the church, uh, which are the four pillars given in the New Testament. Uh, Today, lifting high the name of Jesus through worship. And like Doug really uh, began to mention last week, uh, pillars are the structures that uphold the building. And if the pillars break, or if they crack, or if they crumble, or if they collapse... Uh, The building will not stand. The building is in grave danger. And worship is like that in the church. If it's anything other, if the worship pillar in the church is anything other than uh, rock solid, the church is in grave danger. See, when God's people worship, God shows up. And when God's people don't, God doesn't. How much more important could it be that we have the foot on the accelerator of the worship of God's one and only Son every week together really all begs the question, how would you characterize your worship of the Lord Jesus Christ? And if we're going to get to uh, upholding this pillar together as we gather every single week, really the, the we of our pillar together as a church is a bunch of yous. And so as you would think about the worship pillar in your life, how would you characterize it? 
what kind of worship do we have together when, when you show up? Maybe you would characterize yourself a little bit like this. Uh, are you a collapsed worshiper? And the pillar is just fallen over. It's really not good for much of anything. May or may not be at church every week. It's kind of like come as you please as it uh, fits into maybe whatever else is really important to you in your life. Uncommitted, unconnected. Maybe you even like it that way. You're the collapsed worshiper. I wonder, do you know Jesus Christ and what he's done for you? Maybe you've been around a lot of religious activity, but today is the day that you could place your faith in Jesus Christ and know him, and that pillar could stand up and stand strong. And I hope that if that's you, you'll come to him. Maybe you're not the collapsed worshiper, because many of you are not. Most of you are not. Uh, Maybe you would be a crumbling worshiper. You used to be extremely passionate in your worship of the Lord, and But something's happened. Something in your life has happened. Something relationally maybe has happened to you. Something that would, uh, instead of have moved your heart in love towards God like it should have, is maybe uh, you've allowed it to fill your heart with bitterness, anger, unresolved conflict. Whatever it is, when you come, you have lost the love and adoration that you once had for God's son. And the pillar is slowly, piece by piece, day by day, is chipping away. Are you a crumbling worshiper? Are you a cracked worshiper? Are you a cracked worshiper? See the crack in the pillars there. You're, you're here every week. But something's just holding you back from the kind of unrestrained love adoration that God wants for his son. I find myself kind of I would categorize myself here, I think, a lot of times. The pillars standing, ready to worship the Lord Jesus Christ every week, but still feel like, like something is holding me back from the kind of adoration that I think God desires. Maybe like our Haitian brothers and sisters, huh? Whether it's fear of, uh, fear of am I going to be distracting and all of a sudden get caught up in myself as if everybody else is looking at me right now in the worship service and frankly nobody cares. Or maybe it's fear that somebody's going to look at me and just think that if I gave what I thought God wanted me to give, that it just wouldn't be sincere. That it would be fake or be a show or... I often feel sometimes like maybe we're singing a song and we talk about bowing our knees and I sometimes just want to kneel. And I never have. Sometimes a cracked worshiper. You say, you don't really look like it all the time. Well, it's because worship is so much an issue of my heart before God. And I long to have the heart of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, when uh, Michal questioned David's sincerity when he danced before the Lord. I long to have the passion in David's heart that says, when he said to her, 2 Samuel 6.22, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. 
and I will be abased in your eyes. In other words, I don't care what you think. It was for the Lord. Long for that kind of worship. Are you a collapsed worshiper, crumbling worshiper? Are you a cracked worshiper? Did you notice something in common about all those pictures? The building isn't standing in any of them. And just like what becomes of buildings when pillars fall or when they don't stand in the strength that God wants them to stand in is what becomes of churches when our worship stops being what God made it to be. God stops attending and so does everyone else. But what if there's another option? What if there's another option? Hold on to that before we get there. Let's get the context. John chapter 4. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 4. Quick summary of the context as you're turning there. Uh, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. I think Doug preached through John recently, so uh, you may even remember some of this pretty well. And uh, their disciples and Jesus are on a journey. They're traveling through Samaria. Jesus is tired. Uh, he sits down at the well. The woman comes. He says, give me a drink. And then he just starts talking with her. And she's amazed that he's talking with her. And he, he begins to promise her things, like that he could give her living water, that he could give her living water welling up to eternal life that he could be the one thing in her life that satisfies all of her greatest longings. And in verse 15, she doesn't really understand that entirely. She says, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So in other words, she's like, well, give me this magic water then. And Jesus is like, if you want it, there's some things about your life that you need to understand. You're looking for it in all the wrong places. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. You're looking for living water, the one thing that would satisfy your soul in all the wrong places. Verse 19, she begins to change the subject pretty quickly. Uh, doubtless, she's uncomfortable, just like if anybody started telling you all of a sudden uh, everything you had ever done and all the secrets of your own heart, you would start feeling very uncomfortable, uncomfortable very quickly. And so she's certainly uncomfortable. But it's also hard to know whether that's the reason she changes the subject or all of a sudden at the beginning of verse 19 when she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Whether she is all of a sudden like, wow, this is a rare opportunity. How many, how many prophets did you get to talk to this week? Zero, right? How many do you think she's talked to before? Zero. So I'm talking, she's all of a sudden like, I'm talking to a prophet right now. He just told me everything about his own heart. Maybe she just wants to take advantage of this rare opportunity uh, to get an answer to a plaguing question that had been going on between the Jews and the Samaritans for generations. Read verse, let's read verse 20. Our fathers, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. So she says, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. See, there's uh, really uh, the Samaritans had the rival with the Jews. The Samaritans were in a worship rival is kind of like the worship wars of 2,000 years ago. Uh, the Samaritans had a temple on Mount Gerizim, and the Jews had the temple in Jerusalem uh, where they should have had it. And so there's this worship war going on. It's kind of like a, a bit like the Hatfields and the McCoys happening, uh, though nobody really knows why the Hatfields and the McCoys are happening, uh, why that ever happened. Uh, we know this. Uh, the Jews and the Samaritans were fighting for years over the location of right worship. But what Jesus is going to begin to introduce is there's no reason for you to be fighting about where you worship anymore. There's no reason for either of you to be priding yourself on where you worship anymore. Verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. So Jesus is like the age-old question of where to worship? Who cares? It doesn't matter anymore. Stop fussing and fighting about it. It doesn't matter whether you're in a theater or you're in a big warehouse or you're in a church building. If God is so gracious to provide for you. That's not the issue. Jesus says the time is coming. And in a moment, he's going to say is now here when the where of worship doesn't matter. And so if the, if the theater doesn't seem as worshipful to you, the issue really isn't the theater. The issue is who and how. You think about Jesus. We meet in a big warehouse. It's kind of crazy. Doesn't have any air conditioning. It was the hottest summer like ever. <laughs> Who cares? I told our church family, I was like, I don't know if we're always going to get to meet in the warehouse. I don't know if we're going to ever, ever have air conditioning. I have no idea. I just know this. I know a couple of things. One, our brothers and sisters all across the world don't have air conditioning. And uh, so we can deal for a few weeks. All right. A big fan does a pretty good job. Then uh, the second thing about that is, is I don't know if we're always going to be meeting in the warehouse. I have no idea. And uh, for some reason, we got in a jam with our place to meet. I just told them, we'll buy a big bus. We'll put it in my front yard. It'll probably have air conditioning anyway. And we'll praise the Lord Jesus in there because it just doesn't matter where we meet. And we'll sing, sing songs like the wheels on the bus go round and round and such things like that. Verse 23 and 24 is really where we're going to focus our time. And uh, these Two verses are probably the most foundational verses, verses in the establishment and history of Harvest Bible Chapel. Um, so let's uh, think about this thought first. God seeks worshipers. God seeks worshipers. Verse 23 and 24. But the hour is coming, Jesus says, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God seeks worshipers. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. God seeks. 
God seeks the idea here. It's not like God looks off an outlook from heaven and just like looks around with binoculars and waits to see like who's the person with hands in the air. There's a worshiper right there. There's a worshiper over there. It's much more active and intensive than that. God is seeking in the sense of God is seeking and going after and demanding worshipers. The kind of seeking that God does is like a a heat-seeking missile going after its target so that it can absolutely blow up in his praise. That's why the whole following context talks begins to talk about how the fields are white for harvest. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Why are the fields white for harvest? Because God is seeking worshipers. And in the context after that, beginning in verse 39, the reason that Jesus is in Samaria is so that many Samaritans from that town believed in him. And God sent him there to seek worshipers. That would declare things like verse 42 at the end. And we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. And if that wasn't enough to convince you that God is seeking worshipers, how about the fact that Jesus is here in this story and that Jesus stepped into the world and it's Jesus who gave up the glory of heaven and Jesus beginning in his suffering uh, by taking on manhood And Jesus, by continuing in his suffering, would suffer physically unto death and be tortured on the cross. But Jesus' suffering would deepen beyond his physical suffering and the weight of every single sin and the guilt and shame that you feel every time you give into something you ought not to be giving into and the deep shame that you feel about that, and the deep shame that you feel about all the things that nobody has any idea about you in your heart. Jesus felt and understood the weight of that in his suffering on the cross, and greater than you now know, multiplied across every person who he has saved across the world, Because his holiness that we don't have when we experience the depth of of our shame deepened it for him. And and God sent his son and his suffering went further still because his father abandoned him on the cross and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that the father could pour out his wrath and the penalty for my sin and for your sin upon him so unjustly so that it wouldn't be poured out on you and I. Oh. He raised him from the dead and ascended into glory. God is seeking worshipers. God is seeking worshipers. count how many times the term worship was used in verses 20 to 24. Ten times. Ten times. So the subject matter of the sermon today is all God's people said, 
because the subject matter of the text is worship. That's how we roll here at Harvest. Uh, apparently, this subject, this is one of the most concentrated uh, passages in the entire Bible on worship. Apparently, this subject is most important to God. And I pray, most important to us. After all, Doug preached on preaching last week. I'm preaching on lifting high the name of Jesus through worship this week. What's more important? Raise your hand if you think preaching is more important than worship. I know, you're all alike. Can't possibly be that because we're on worship this week. I'm not raising my hand. Worship is the chief end of our existence. And the only reason I preach is hopefully that God's people would raise up in greater worship to God himself. I hope I become a better preacher for our church so our church can become better at worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Worship, the chief end of our existence. God is seeking worshipers. In heaven, I retire from preaching. I am jobless there. God will continue to reveal himself so that he can invite greater and greater and greater worship from his people. In our passage this morning, uh, the Father is the object of worship explicitly. The hour is coming is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And uh, as frequent in the scriptures for God to be the the Father, to be the object of our worship as should be. Uh, Worship is God-centered. It's Trinitarian-centered. It's not wrong to worship the Father, to worship the Son, or even to worship the Spirit. And so uh, here, the Father is the object of our worship. But here's the thing about the Father. The Father has exalted his Son to the highest place. the name of Jesus every knee should bow and the father wants the exaltation of his son and the father receives worship when the son is exalted and praised like a father who loves his son's victory is the father God who loves the victory and adoration of his son that's why Jesus said in John 17 glorify me Glorify me, exalt me, that I may exalt you. What God has done in Jesus Christ is the message of the Bible, and if our worship doesn't reflect that message, then God doesn't love our worship. Now, we're a couple pages into this sermon. We've been talking about worship a lot. Just to make sure that we... uh, understand what we're talking about let's get a definition so look at the text did you see the definition of worship given in the text no you did not there isn't one i'm just kidding in fact there's actually no place in the entire bible where an explicit definition of what worship is there's no place that says worship equals or worship is Uh, what we do is we see lots of pictures and various terminology used to describe the nature of worship Here's a few. Homage. 
Homage is used. Homage is uh, bowing down to the ground. Homage is like I'm falling on my face and kissing the feet of the one whom I am worshiping. Another term that we use oftentimes is service. So all of the service that was happening, uh, for instance, in the uh, tabernacle, in the sacrifices, and in the temple, service, or in the uh, establishment and celebration, and all the work to celebrate the Old Testament festivals, And as we move uh, to the New Testament, obedience being such an important part of what worship is, but beyond that, our sacrifice, our service now is uh, Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Service, then there's reverence. Reverence. Let us offer worship acceptable to God with reverence and awe, Hebrews 12, 28 says. Respect due to God, appropriate fear, wonder at his majesty. I think the simplest and clearest biblical definition of worship is this. Worship is ascribing worth to God. It's attributing worth to God. So homage bows before the one in a great sense of unworthiness. Like John the Baptist in his heart, he must increase, I must decrease before the one who is more worthy. Service gives my life and my voice for the sake of the one who is more worthy. Reverence places respect not upon anything else, but upon the one who is more worthy. Worship is ascribing worth to God. It, uh, the word has kind of developed a little bit over time. It used to be called worthship. Long before we were around, a worthship, uh, which clarifies the idea quite a bit. One is, one is, one is treasured and valued in highest degree and adored in greatest worth over all others from our hearts and in the fruit of our lips. Psalm 29.2 says this, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. And see, here's the thing. When you go out to buy something and you go to the store, you make your decisions about what you're going to buy based on how much something is worth to you. And sometimes there's a pretty massive chasm between what the store thinks something is worth and what you think that something is worth. Am I right? Right. So you walk up to something and you go, uh, that price is just a little bit too high. It's not worth it. And so what do you do? You walk away and give nothing. Because you will always give in proportion to what something's worth to you. And just likewise, we give to God in worship, in proportion to what we understand him to be worth to us. How much is God worth to you? Because God is seeking worshipers who ascribe worth to him. Worth enough to give their last dying, martyred breath to his praise. What kind of worship are you giving him? We only get a few songs a week to do this together. Are you ascribing to the Lord the glory due his name? 
is what you do when you come in on Sunday morning, a clear picture of treasuring, treasuring in your heart God's infinite worth. That's the worshiper God is seeking and creating in you. What kind of worship pillar are you? Collapsed? Cracked? Crumbling? God seeks worshipers. And the second thing I want us to think about is God cares a lot about how we worship. God cares a lot about how we worship. Do you notice in verse 23 and 24, uh, it's repeated two times. If you noticed it in the text, uh, the hour is coming is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in a movie theater, in a warehouse, in a church building. No, non-issues. How is the issue in spirit and in truth? Jesus repeats this no less to the woman. Uh, The real issue is not where, it's how in spirit and in truth because God is spirit. Verse 24, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, if God is seeking worshipers who worship a certain way, don't you want to know how? Don't you want to know how? Uh, God wants us to worship him first uh, in spirit. It's both and. It's not one or the other. Uh, It's in spirit and truth all the time. But let's think about worship in spirit. I don't think this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Uh, Most English Bible versions uh, agree. Uh, I don't want to take away from the Holy Spirit. He's got a pretty significant role in the book of John up to this point. But this is the human spirit. And so the idea is uh, God's going after worship from our spirits. The location is not a geographical place. The location that God wants worship from is from my spirit. You know you have a spirit? You have a spirit. Your spirit, your soul, your heart are all synonymous in the Bible. Uh, You are a person with flesh and bones, and you are a person with a spirit, material and immaterial. Uh, Your spirit is the seat of your mind, your emotions, your will. Uh, And God is seeking worshipers who will worship him with all of their inward person and with all of their highest and greatest and most inward heart, devotion, love, and adoration to his son. Of course, the Holy Spirit is at work in that. And the Holy Spirit is working and engaging with our spirit to exalt God's son. So spirit worship becomes God's spirit energizing my spirit through the truth, which we will talk about in a moment, that we sing with all of his life and passion and energy for his own glory to praise Jesus Christ. It's inward and of the heart. In other words, you could be showing up at church on Sunday and mouthing a lot of words to songs, but not be giving spiritual worship to God. The worship that God seeks is worship that requires engagement from your entire being. I hope you go home today really tired from engaging God with great passion from all that you are in great heartfelt loving devotion from worshiping just so intensely in your spirit, our mind. Songs can really help us engage our mind. Spiritual worship engages the mind. Songs should be expansive, thoughtful, reflective, thinking God's thoughts after him. 
and knowing in this moment we are singing to him. Spiritual worship is emotional. Songs should be uh, simple so that our spirit can easily engage in the truth of the songs supported by, not led by, a musical accompaniment can move our affections to worship as much as God wants his, us to think his thoughts after him, he wants us to feel his feelings after him. We are whole people. Saying a lot of things and rarely feeling them uh, just as insincere and unloving. Spiritual worship uh, engages the mind, it engages the emotion, and it also engages our will. We choose to engage in the worship process with passion. We're diligent to eliminate the thoughts and distractions and everything that could possibly crowd out these few moments when together we lift high the name of Jesus through worship. Obviously, uh, when spirit worship doesn't have truth worship, it ends up in a ditch. And uh, we wor worship really has this easy way of becoming emotionalism. We end up actually worshiping what we think is the feel of what worship is, or we worship worship, or we worship the worship experience instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. So someone told me a, a while back, they said, I was in a church recently, and we sang for one hour. And we sang for one hour, and guess how many songs they sang? Four songs, one hour. Shoot me. Lord, take me, please. And my concern with that much repetition is that, see, the truth no longer is leading the way. And that's the error of spirit-only worship. Uh, that's why spirit-only worship is insufficient, and this is why Jesus says God wants worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. In truth. Um, hold up the truth. And who is Jesus who's talking to the Samaritan right now? Is he not Jesus full of grace and truth, John 1, 14? Is it not Jesus, I am the way and the truth, John 14, 6? So in truth means according to how God has revealed himself. And God has revealed himself most fully in the person of his son who's talking the man of truth talking to the Samaritan woman right now. So we worship according to what Jesus is like and how God's word reveals to us what he is like. Problem with truth worship when it's not spirit and truth worship is um, oftentimes in the name of truth, we void the truth of its power. And when we sing, we sing truth that hinders our spirit's ability to process and engage it. How many, have you ever been to a church service where you sung a song that was full of the majestic theology of what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ for us and it was absolutely lifeless and passionless and we might as well, uh, it was cold in there. I mean, if I said to my wife, honey, it's 10 a.m. again on Sunday. I love you. Thought it was time to tell you again. How's that going to go over? How do you think that goes over with God?
also, have you ever sang a song and just had no idea like what you were singing? I mean, the, whatever the song was trying to say was so far lofty things above your head, you have no idea what it means. A different shelf than what I now understand about God and his word that few in the congregation probably have any understanding of. See, the goal of worship and truth worship is not just to say true things. It's not just that they're said. It's to say true things with understanding of what I am saying to God right now. That also, as I have understanding of what I am saying right now, my spirit also is moved and engaged through understanding. The Spirit of God doesn't work in worship to illuminate ignorant hearts. And so we should choose songs that have a level that everyone in the congregation can grasp. I mean, when has the goal of reading your Bible ever been to just read across the words on the page? Read through five chapters of my Bible today. Way to go. Did you understand it? The goal of Bible reading is to read the truth with understanding, to know what has God said. It's not about going over the words on the page. And worship is not about saying the words on the screen. Understanding is necessary. That's why you all don't go to a church where you have a preacher who communicates in such lofty thoughts that nobody ever understands anything and everybody walks out confused. Because truth, when it's presented in any way that's just way beyond understanding, is void of all power to move our hearts to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we preach like that, people aren't coming back. And when we worship like that, I fear God might not come back. God seeks in spirit and truth worshipers. It's not an either or, it's a both and. We want all of both all the time. God seeks worshipers. God cares a lot about how we worship. Uh, let me talk with you just for a moment about worship here at Harvest. And so we want spirit and truth worship because God wants spirit and truth worship. And that has a lot of implications for how we think about what we're doing every single Sunday morning, the songs we choose, the music that it accompanies that, and everything else that is a part of our corporate worship together in ascribing glory to his name. So we believe that uh, contemporary worship without compromise, and what I mean by that is contemporary worship not compromising the truth, contemporary worship without compromise is one of the best choices of forms in order to help us have 100% spirit worship and 100% truth worship all the time. And we have freedom with great variety in, the express, in contemporary expression. But sometimes contemporary worship and especially contemporary Christian music is compromised. 
It's compromised. So sometimes why we do contemporary worship falls way short of the goal of it being biblical and worshipful. We don't want to just sing songs that are true. We want to sing songs that are truly meaningful. Contemporary worship does not mean that we never sing hymns. I love hymns. I sing hymns privately in my private worship all the time. I love them. We sing them. I love singing them. That's not what I'm talking about. I do have some disdain for some hymns, though. Just like I have some disdain for a lot of contemporary songs, and possibly more. But contemporary worship becomes compromised sometimes. When? When we do it for reasons other than biblical and worshipful like this. Number one reason, we ignore or reject biblical truth in the lyrics that are written down to produce songs. This is the big one. If the theology is bad in a song, if it's saying things that are not true, put it in the cannon, fire it into a landfill, hope it dies and nobody ever listens to it again. Or contemporary worship becomes compromised when we do it because it's cool. This is the next cool Christian church thing of our day. Started on the West Coast, moved to the East Coast, just like everything else. Churches need to really just end that motivation for everything they do, uh, starting with why they do music and how. Here's one. This one's popularly used. It's the only way to reach the next generation. Contemporary worship becomes compromised when we think that it's the only way to reach the next generation. In other words, no one's going to come to church under 30 unless we do contemporary worship. That's not even true. Tons of songs that are much more liturgical and formal than we are, uh, where God is present, who are upholding his word and seeking to worship his son, choosing a different form for that that I would not choose, are thriving with people in their 20s. When contemporary worship is the means of church growth, and when did contemporary music ever become God's plan for evangelism? God's mission for evangelism is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Contemporary worship becomes compromised when we sing boring songs. Some songs are just flat boring. They're boring. And uh, hymns, contemporary songs alike, they're just boring. And if you come to church and uh, the five-song selection all makes you want to die, maybe we should have a funeral for the song. Lyrics become primarily about us. Be the final reason I'll give, though there are many more. A lot of songs on Christian radio are like this. Uh, some of them are on the top of the billboard charts right now. That scares me about what we think is important in Christian music. God doesn't move in power when we worship ourselves. He moves in power when we ascribe to him the glory due his name through Jesus Christ. God seeks worshipers. God cares a lot about how we worship in spirit and truth. 
Worship at Harvest is contemporary without compromise. And this final thing quickly, the time to worship is now. It's now. You look back at the beginning of verse 23. Jesus says, the hour is coming. And then what does he say? And now is here, meaning I have come. And he's not to the cross yet, but I have come. And so the hour is now when the change is taking place from where to who and how. May Jesus Christ be praised from Harvest Indy West. May Jesus Christ be praised from Harvest Bible Chapel in Bloomington. Now, God raise up a church that draws the gaze and desire and delight of God's heart. A church that now sees as its greatest and most fervent and most consuming passion every person in the life of the church. The adoration of God's only son. God, fuel us with the energy of your passion for your glory. The time to worship is now. How's your worship pillar doing? How are we doing? How are we doing because of you? Have you collapsed? Have you crumbled? Have you cracked? I promised you another option. Here's what God is seeking. God is seeking cross worshipers. Are you a cross worshiper? The cross, figuratively speaking, the old wooden pillar that never cracks and never crumbles and never collapses in the heart of those who have placed their faith in the one who died there. And of course, we don't worship the wood. We worship Jesus Christ who was sacrificed there and who was raised from the dead. The cross is the pillar of our heart upholding all our worship of God's Son. It might not be standing on Calvary anymore like many of the pillars we saw before, but it is certainly standing true in our souls for our eternal salvation. And what God wants in worship, spirit and truth worship, starts, begins, and ends at the cross work of Jesus Christ and in his resurrection. And may we be the church that deeply loves the cross and the one who died there, that he might get the highest and greatest adoration and that the pillar of worship and lifting high the name of Jesus would never suffer and never crack and never crumble for the sake of the advance of his gospel and all the earth. Cross-worshippers, they worship without fear. Unrestrained by places or others' opinions, likely facing the harsh judgment of some like Jesus on it. But you just don't care. I will become even more contemptible than this. Jesus Christ is calling for your praise and you will give it. Stand with me for prayer and then we're going to sing a couple songs together.
And here's the thing. Worship team can go ahead and come on up. We don't get to do this till next week. People tell me all the time, you should just preach like you're never going to have the opportunity to preach again. I think that should be true of worship. Let's worship when we gather together to lift high the name of Jesus Christ like we may never have the opportunity to sing here again. Let's draw near the cross and worship its Christ. Let's all of the yous grow in making us a better we. No crumbling, no cracking, cracking, no collapsing, but cross worshipers. Oh God, you are seeking worshipers and we praise you that those who are gathered here who know Jesus Christ, your son, who you gave for us have begun the, begun the journey deeper into what you have done in Jesus Christ and are responding in worship. Father, I pray that you would protect this church always from anything less than the greatest heart adoration that the cross of Jesus Christ warrants. And Father, like the Samaritan woman and like the other Samaritans who heard the words of Jesus and believed, giving up everything else for all that they needed in you, oh God, would that be true of us today? Father, the time is now for you to receive your cross-shaped adoration. Father, would you help us to give it now in Christ's name? Amen.